The following program may contain explicit language. It's Thursday, August 20th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Steve Bannon, poor Steve Bannon, arrested for defrauding would-be generous, kind-hearted, cruel, selfish idiots who donated to build a border wall. Man, those victim impact statements are going to be something. Your Honor, ever since I was a little child, I was raised on the values of honesty, integrity, and opposition to immigration. Denying the American dream to others, well, that was my American dream. I believe in an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, which for an illegal is like $4 an hour and a ride back to Home Depot. Your Honor, that man, that man over there stole my dreams of blocking others from their dreams. You would think in this country when a person solicits donations for a 12th century security feature that has no chance of working, by God, that donor's money will be wasted in a quixotic attempt to deny history, not pocketed by a pockmarked charlatan to fund his multi-shirted lifestyle. But you know, strange things were being said all over. On a Cincinnati Reds broadcast, the announcer Tom Brenneman was caught uttering an anti-gay slur, the worst anti-gay slur, the other F word, if you know what I'm talking about. And then a few hours later, in the second half of the doubleheader, literally, issuing an apology that emphasized that the slur was in no way indicative of his character. For anybody that I've offended here tonight, I can't begin to tell you how deeply sorry I am. That is not who I am uh, and never has been. Well, not never. I mean, like an hour and a half ago it was. Maybe he did a webinar in between innings, shoehorning some sensitivity training in during the seventh inning stretch. But most bizarrely about this was when Brenneman was issuing his apology, he was still announcing the baseball game somberly, but in full announce mode. So viewers heard this. I can't tell you how much I say from the bottom of my heart. I'm so very, very sorry. I pride myself and think of myself as a, a man of faith. As there's a drive in a deep left field by Castellanos, it will be a home run. And then back to the apologies. As Castellano sends it over the wall, I know I took it over the line, much as pitcher Greg Holland has just done with the hanging curveball. I too made a mistake right over the middle of the plate, which will also raise my ERA, equality, respect, and acceptance. Odd, discordant, yet typical of August 19th, 2020, a night when a respected and somber network news anchor solemnly informed the audience that the president of the United States had basically accepted the endorsement of QAnon, which he described this way. The followers believe, among other things, that the world is run by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles and cannibals plotting against Trump while operating a global child sex trafficking ring and while spreading the coronavirus via 5G internet service. So you can't see it, but Williams literally checks notes, checks notes, literally checks notes before he says... Today, Trump described them as, quote, people who love our country and who like me very much. It's the music, though, the brassy pomp of the music that makes that description sing. Also the cannibalism, but the music helps. But for a day of weird, odd, off-the-wall utterances, we go to them and not, thankfully, the DNC. Because everything at the DNC 
was perfectly fine, perfectly stayed, nice, normal people making nice, normal arguments against a not nice, abnormal administration. Really, 100% of the DNC programming falls into that bucket. No one at the DNC played footsie with an endorsement from Heaven's Gate, the Lord's Resistance Army, or adherence to lizard people philosophy. It just didn't happen. No former president, no former nominee, not even a former cabinet secretary was asked to refute or allow the support of the Branch Davidians, the Order of the Solar Temple, or the Symbionese Liberation Organization. And none of them said, hey, they're patriots, and I'm glad they like me. So, in a sense, the convention lacked news. The lack of raving lunatics was news. All the raving lunatics support one party and not the other. Although, there is still a day left, who knows, Maybe Biden will show up wrapped completely in aluminum foil as a play for the anti-electromagnetic frequency crowd. Then it's game on, QAnon, and the election will be thrown to the House unless the lizard people get there first. On the show today, one chat, one sustained chat with progressive activist and pundit Jess McIntosh. And after the show, I shall return to regale you with tales of some of my exciting guest hosts. Stay for that, but first... Here's Jess McIntosh. Joining me now is Jess McIntosh, who I always enjoy talking to. She's just one of those people. She's a CNN commentator. She's the co-host of the Signal Boost show on Sirius XM. In 2016, she was director of communication outreach for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Hey, Jess, how are you? I'm, you know, it's been a loaded question since 2016, and it's even weirder now, but um, I'm I'm pretty good, all things considered. This has been a better week Mm -hmm. than most. And I don't usually say that about DNC convention weeks. (laughs) So has it been building? Has it been getting better and better? Because for me, I thought the first night was pretty good. And then the second night had a quirky calamari-esque roll call. (laughs) But then last night, Obama scared us all. And my take was that Kamala Harris, who can give an exciting and barbed and compelling speech, gave an adequate speech. I acknowledge the history of the moment, but as for the speech itself, not blown away. But what did you think? Honestly, I saw your tweet to that effect, and I was like, Mike is a good guy who I totally respect, and this is not one of those people who is being like, I don't know, Hillary said all the right things, but she sure sounded stiff. I'm not saying that you did that. But I didn't get that from Kamala's speech. I loved it. Like, I thought she hit all of her marks. The things that I wanted her to do were to to talk about herself which is a thing, I mean, I've worked with a lot of women candidates. I was at Emily's List for years before I went to Hillary. Women candidates have a very hard time talking about their own bios, and Kamala is no exception. So I I wanted her to go deep into that, and I wanted her to do the prosecutorial thing that she's so good at. So she did the first thing. An an interesting moment happened where my my boyfriend, who, you know, we've been together for five years, he's, he's... he is first-generation immigrant on both sides as well. His, his mom is Jamaican and his dad is Irish. Um, he can cook like nobody's business. Anyway, in the middle of her speech, he goes, I just realized Kamala Harris is as Jamaican and as American as I am. And when he said that, I was looking at Twitter because that's what I do. And a very good friend of mine tweets, Kamala just said that her mom immigrated from India when she was 17. My mom immigrated from Pakistan at the same age. I don't know what it means, but it means something to me. So, like, two people in my immediate best friend orbit were having I identify with this woman moments 
She hadn't been either one of their candidates. And like, you got to imagine that there were millions of Americans that were doing the same thing with them. And then, you know, she said, I know a predator when I see one. And like, that's a little shiv moment right there for you. I thought it was a good speech. I thought she rose to the moment. And speaking in an empty auditorium has got to be the worst possible setting for a politician. And I, I thought I thought she met it. Agree to disagree. No problem. If you want to give it an A and if I want to give it a B minus, it really doesn't matter. First of all, I I will say that I'm going to guess both of those people were going to vote for the Biden-Harris ticket either. But you're right. To some extent, she had to define herself and get her biography out there and all to the good. Is something similar to that going on with Joe Biden? Because, you know, the day before a speech like that, everyone has these talks about what does he have to say? You know, my take is just nothing horrendous and we'll be okay. That's it. This is uh, this is honestly the night that I'm looking forward to, like, the least because there is sort of the most on the line. I can't imagine a world where Kamala Harris whiffed last night. I really can't. <laughs> like she's, she was great in every debate that she was in. You know, we can we can agree to disagree that this was a a, a B minus speech, but she wasn't. She was never going to blow it. Joe Biden just has to meet the rest of the convention to close us out. Like this convention hasn't really been about Joe Biden. It's been about the the insane moment that we're living in and the kind of future that we have to visualize if we're not going to kill ourselves before this is all over, or if we're going to do the like monumental work of winning this presidential election by 5 million plus votes, which is what we're going to need to do. So Joe Biden just needs to meet that. That's it. And then give us our marching orders because everybody's got to work really, really hard for the next 70 whatever days. Right. And strangely, uh, in politics, you would expect the opposition to have a different thought or a different framing for what Biden has to do. But Trump, due to his ongoing attacks about Biden's cognitive skills, has essentially uh, laid the marker down that if Joe Biden is just okay, then he will maybe look to a lot of people like he's doing a lot better than we expected. It's sort of hilarious that Trump doesn't know what he's supposed to do as a politician. Like he's never been good at like lowering expectations when he needs to or raising them for his opponent. He's saying that he's ahead in the polls. You'll never see Joe Biden say that, even though he is, because that's really bad politics. If people think this is a shoe in they don't do the work. Trump doesn't get that. So he's always telling people that this is a lock and he's got 96% approval rating and all of it. It's like, not only is that dumb and wrong, it's crappy politics. Like, you're depressing your people. Your people don't feel like they need you. He sort of did the same thing in saying if, if Biden is, is okay, then, then, you know, that's enough for him. He should, but he can't do what he's supposed to do, which is talk about how, you know, how long Biden has been in the Senate and how experienced he is and how many times he's done this and all. Like, that's what he ought to be doing, but he can't do that because he's trying to say that the man is senile, which is so obviously right. not true that, like, you can't build up expectations if you've literally set them at he has cognitive difficulties. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think Biden's lost uh, yeah, some miles off his fastball, but we're comparing him to not even the Little Leaguer, the guy in the dunk tank. You know? Oh, my God. That's, that's who we're comparing him to. I wanted to talk to you about progressive politics because that's the world that you swim in. In the Biden-Harris, should they get elected, in their first 100 days, what are aside from stewarding the economy and the response to the coronavirus in a proper direction. But what are the initiatives that you expect them to be championing? What 
are going to be their version of the ACA or their version of big swings and how progressive will those swings be? I mean, I, I think we're looking at a reordering of the economy. And I thought it was really telling that they gave Elizabeth Warren the spot that they did and they gave her a policy speech. Like, they could have had her come out and do the knife Donald Trump thing because she's great at that and everyone loves to see it. But they gave her the policy speech about the child care economy, which I honestly, as a progressive, believe is one of the most important, most progressive, most radical things we could do to fix our country. The fact that we don't have a child care economy undermines the entirety of our capitalist system. We are literally depending on unpaid, unacknowledged labor in order to get the rest of our stuff done. And it has been incredibly frustrating as a feminist and a progressive that those that issue, because it is seen misogynistically as a woman's issue, is not seen as a centerpiece of a progressive agenda. I don't need to say that deregulating banks is more important or more progressive than paying for childcare and acknowledging that it takes time and effort. I, I believe that those two things are equally progressive. So I, I know you didn't ask me to do that tangent, but that this is, this is my progressive answer to, to what I want to see done. I want to see childcare acknowledged. And the fact that we are sitting here in this pandemic with that being one of the central tenets of the crisis, I think maybe gives us an opportunity to do it. We have half the workforce who aren't able, who aren't able to reach their potential because we, ha- we, we won't acknowledge that there's this other work being done that there's no support structure for. There's literally nothing bigger than that right now. Like, if we, could, if we could allow everybody to participate in the workforce at the level that they want to, knowing that their children would be taken care of, my God, the things we could get done. So that's literally number one for me. Uh, number two is, is, is climate change. I want to get as close to the Green New Deal as possible. The first thing I want to do, obviously, is rejoin Paris, but that's got to be the ceiling. I mean, the floor, not the ceiling. Mm-hmm. So I, I think those are the two things that I immediately want to see. I mean, the first thing that I want to see, though, is a, a vaccine delivery system. Like, whenever I have progressive friends who are like, man, Joe Biden was my last choice. I can't do it. I'm like, okay, just think. You're not voting for a man. You're voting for a vaccine delivery system. <laughs> Do you want Donald Trump in charge yeah. of it or do you want someone else? And like, I, I have a hundred percent success rate with that one. So I give that to you and your listeners if you are having similar conversations. What convinces you that Biden is going to actively champion these causes? He's one of those people who seems to listen to critics like more than the average bear, more than the average, yeah. you know, statesman, elder statesman, white guy, politician. Um, he, he, we've been mad at him before, <laughs> And, and he's listened. You know, the, the Violence Against Women Act came after the feminist pushback from the Anita Hill hearings. And he doesn't, he doesn't do a great mm-hmm. job of talking about when he was wrong or why he was wrong or what he learned from it. But we actually can see in his policy that he hears people. He put people on his team who completely disagree with him. You know, the fact that he has AOC and John Kerry in charge of climate change makes me feel like this is someone who is going to be willing to take the concerns of the people who are inheriting this this broken planet seriously. Otherwise, he was just setting himself up for a major headache there, which his team certainly would have known. So it's the people he chooses to surround himself with. The, the history that he has of, of changing his mind when he is confronted by people who have uh, experience that he does not have, um, you know, and, and the fact that, that he was a, a deferential wingman to, to Barack Obama. I think he wasn't my first choice, but there is something about his character that I find 
comforting that I don't see often in men of his age and experience. Like his, his readiness to cry, his readiness to turn over the mic. Like there are things about him that make me think, okay, this, this could work. Yeah, to talk about emotion, to talk about pain, to show vulnerability. That's That goes to the character issue. But as you were talking, I hadn't thought of this or said this before, but maybe the key, if you are progressive, is don't trust or expect or want or need Joe Biden to be progressive. What you should do is expect and want and need and push the Democratic Party to be progressive. And Joe Biden has always shown that where he wants to be by inclination and character and maybe even strategy is pretty much right in the middle of the Democratic Party. He really wants to serve serve his constituents. He wants to serve the public, even when he's done things that we think of now as not progressive or conservative, like school busing. That was because he listened to his constituents. So if activists like you, if you want to count yourself uh, among them, I think so. I think you have pushed the party to the left. And I think that's why there's a reasonable expectation that Joe Biden will govern to the left. I like that point a lot. I think I'm I'm going to steal it. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) we have the most progressive party platform that we've ever had at the DNC this year. The party, the Overton window has shifted so dramatically for once on our side. Like, I feel like we've been watching Republicans push it over and over and over until we get to the point where they're like, oh, they're not going to jail a woman for having an abortion? Okay, then I guess it's not that bad. Like, this is the first Mm -hmm. time in, in my political career that I have seen the window shift dramatically to the left. And that was even before the pandemic slash racial uprising, which just cemented all of the cracks that we had been saying, hey, this is a problem about for years and years. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's about the party and I think it's about the people within the party. I also think there is a new crop of candidates and they were right to give that. I was so mad about that 17 person keynote thing. I was like, just give it to AOC or Ayanna Presley because they're going to be president and let them do the thing. But I let, and I still think that should have happened. And there are a lot of people that should have had speaking slots that were worthy of their statures and talents, mostly women who did not. But I loved the seventeen-person keynote. Like those, those people are the future of politics, and they look like like you and me, honestly, politically, ideologically. Like these are not people who come in in a centrist mode. These are people who saw Donald Trump get elected saw that the Republicans were willing to, to do that. They were willing to look the other way. Like all of the all of the infrastructure that was supposed to save us from a leader like Trump failed. And we all watched that, like not just the Republican Party. So that means we have we have activists running for office now. We have teachers turning into activists, quickly becoming candidates. Now they're congresswomen. Like that's going to change the party from within just as the party is growing from without. So I, I think I think we might be on a, a really a really good snowball hill towards actual progressive policy legislation, given the people who are voting and the people who are running and the people who are winning. It, it all it, it kind of seems to be pointing in our direction. Um, the media hasn't quite caught up yet, so it might not look like that if you, you, know, if you, if you just read the headlines. But I, when you look at who's getting into office, it's really hard to ignore. Yeah. Now, as for me, when you say you and me, I, sadly enough, maybe Connor Lamb is my spirit animal among those 17 people. Okay, he's like the only one the, I'm not uh, wild about. God damn it. <laughs> you know Randall Woodfin, mm-hmm. the guy from Alabama? Yep. He's, he's, he's a He and I see things uh, similarly in terms of trying to be realistic and agitate for change that could be attained. 
Um, so, so much of the energy and it does seem the anger and online and Twitter isn't real life and all that, but there was so much energy put forth into getting umbrage, achieving umbrage over the fact that AOC had 60 seconds to speak. I'm not even talking about mischaracterizing her. She never said anything for Joe Biden. It wasn't her job. She actually spoke for 97 seconds. And you know what? Like I say, so what? So John Kasich spoke for 338. And I don't remember a sentence that he said, except he was standing in a road. And AOC spoke for 97 seconds. And it's a TikTok generation. And except for the symbolism of it, why I get so upset about that. Well, I think it was a, a bad rollout, honestly, on the on the part of the convention because she she got comparable time to a lot of other speakers, but she was the only one singled out in the beginning as saying she's only got a minute. You know, they didn't tell us right. that a lot of people would only have a minute, and they didn't tell us that she was going to get two. So I think there was a little bit of mismanagement on that part. It is really short sighted to not give AOC a major platform. Like, when I found out that she was getting 60 seconds, there's no way Mike Bloomberg is getting 60 seconds. There's no way John Kasich was getting 60 seconds. There's no way John Kerry is getting 60 seconds. That just seemed to me like an abdication of responsibility on the Democratic Party's part. She is one of, I don't want to give her sole credit, but if we had to put a face on the new politics, it's her. And she's one of the most gifted orators we've ever seen. Like, if she were a guy, we'd be talking about the second coming of RFK, and everybody knows it. But she's not. She's a 29-year-old woman. And so we have to make sure that, you know, everybody's calm, and, you know, she's going to get a little time, but it's just going to be 60 seconds. not going to be a big deal, guys. Don't worry about it. It's still a convention for, you know, for everybody else. And, yeah, I think it's, I think it's dumb. You know, I, she's, she's in, if she weren't incredible, <laughs> I would feel differently about it. But she's sort of undeniably one of our most talented speakers. She can do a lot with very little. We know that about AOC. But what could she do with more? <laughs> Let's try giving her more mm-hmm. sometime. <laughs> you know, Katie Porter's pretty good. Was she, was she even given any time? She's, she's on my, I, I will carry a grudge list to the end of time for not having Katie Porter <laughs> or Ayanna Presley on that list. Both of those women. Are, and I, I'm also angry about Stacey Abrams. We can talk about that too. But but Katie Porter and Ayanna Presley being left off is just, it, it makes zero sense. They are two of our best, clearest speakers. They represent the kind of people who got elected in the wake of Trump. These are the people who are inspiring the new people to come out and vote. These are people with lived experience that we don't ever see in Congress. You want to appeal to a rising electorate. These are exactly the women to do it. And you know, Katie Porter is just a badass. Like Ayanna Presley speaks and you like feel hope you feel hope and warmth and you feel like you're in the presence of a competent person who can get it done katie porter it just I, I mean she's so smart and she just eviscerates anybody who tries to come up with bullshit which is what the republicans are obviously that's all they do i don't know why we wouldn't give them more time and i don't know why we wouldn't give stacey abrams her own time having her close out the rising star thing like Guys, her star is risen. <laughs> She's there. She was a VP contender this year. Biden floated her himself. <laughs> Give her her own speech. I think the answer might be because the imagined voter they're trying to reach is not someone who is going to thrill to the uh, intellectual pyrotechnics of a college professor, but someone who maybe needs their hand held by a septuagenarian former secretary of state in John Kerry, who, by the way, made some pretty good points. Or, or, oh, he did. Or Mike He's Bloomberg. great. I, yeah. You know, I love, I, obviously, like John Kerry's great. They're all great. Everybody's great. But <laughs> I think that the Democrats... And there is the analysis that we turn to you for. 
<laughs> I love all the Democrats. Um, uh, but we spend way too much time focusing on this like mythological swing state diner guy voter who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump and we want to like hold his hand and walk him back to the fold. And that's cool. I think we should do that. Like we should spend some time on that, but we should spend a proportionate amount of time trying to get turnout to 75%, which like that diner guy is a teeny sliver of, you know, we lost those three states in 2016 by 77,000 votes. Over 250,000 Black Americans were illegally thrown off the rolls in just one of those states. A million black men stayed home. And we only got to less than 55% turnout to begin with. So, like, the numbers that we want to be going after are in massive piles around the country of people who do not see themselves reflected in the political system. The, the, the swing state diner guy has been catered to for my entire life. It doesn't work. <laughs> let's try the other thing. Well, let's try it both, right? Let's I try mean, let's it all. I let's do both, but like, let's do it proportionally, you yeah. know? 10% of our time should be mm -hmm. spent on the diner guy. Maybe 40% of our time should be spent on bringing new people into the fold, and then 50 can be on our reliable voters that we know we need to turn out, et cetera, like normal election. But why we do all, we bend over backwards, like we spend all of our money, all of our resources, all of our ads on, on getting that, that particular voter because we've decided that his vote for some reason matters more than the, you know, black 30-year-old mom who's never voted before. And it doesn't. Votes count the same. So you and I did a live event and there there were a lot of progressive people. You're a progressive people, but there were the, the Young Turks crowd and a lot of time, they spent a lot of time essentially yelling about policies that they say they don't agree with and also threatening to withhold their vote. I wonder, A, how much of your energy is, spe is spent in arguments with people you don't even disagree with? <laughs> it seems like a lot. And B, is it time to call their bluff that maybe there are very vocal Chapo Trap House guys who aren't voting for Biden, but do you th are you sensing it won't be enough to sway the election? Yeah, honestly, I think these are like, okay, it, I'm, I'm a progressive commentator, right? If I decided that I wanted to say that I wasn't voting for Joe Biden, do you know how fast I could get booked on every show tomorrow morning? Like, if I mm -hmm. came out and said, in good conscience as a feminist, I can't vote for Joe Biden, here's why, everybody would want to talk to me. These guys are making names for themselves. <laughs> like, they're being contrarian and contrarian sells, and I get it. I, I don't think that we ever would have had their votes. I, 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 I never thought that the Bernie or Bust people were ever going to be with us. Maybe they would have if Bernie had been there, but they probably just would have put their signs up and then forgotten to vote on the day anyway. Like, it's, it's just not a... If you can't look out at the, at the country right now and see that there is a choice here to be made, if you don't care about, I don't know, hugging your friends again or, like, going to a restaurant, like, if that kind of stuff can't motivate you, then, I, you know, you're a lost cause, and I'm not spending any of my, any of my time arguing with you. I'm, I'm spending my time trying to teach people how to vote and how to vote early and how to request your ballot and how to be a poll worker. I mean, that's where we need to spend our energy on. If there's someone who's still, like, up with their little debate me or, you know, sign, I, we just don't have time for that anymore. And it erodes their claim to the moral high ground, I think, at a certain point, if they don't, if they don't oppose Trump, full stop. So let's look ahead to the RNC. What would worry you more if they somehow acted somewhat sensibly or if they just went totally crazy? Oh, man. I mean, I wouldn't trust the first one. The second one, I mean, going crazy right now scares me. Like, we're, we're on the cusp of, like, 
embracing QAnon and, you know, uh, just saying that they're going to redo the election. Like we're, we're on a real slippery slope to authoritarianism right now. So if if they go that way and they are received by their party like this is everything Trump does right now is a test, is a test to see what he can get away with in November if he loses and doesn't feel like having a peaceful transfer of power. So if he tries to go full authoritarian next week and his people are eat it up, um, I think that has scary implications. I I also don't see a scenario where they try to keep it toned down. So I I don't know. I'm I am I have never not looked forward to an RNC more than than this one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what would you watch out for? What should we watch out for? What are the signs of something that would be really disquieting? Uh, yeah, any anything to undermine the election? Changing the changing the date of it, uh, saying that vote by mail is is fraudulent, anything like that. I'm I'm also worried about the. The elevation of like Laura Loomer types, you know, they're getting into the party, they're getting into, they're they're winning their primaries, and if they are embraced by uh, the Republican establishment, whatever that is now, then you know we're looking at a world where you know in ten years Rush Limbaugh is going to be a rhino, and the only ones who you know actually get it are the ones who are wearing the QAnon shirts. Jess McIntosh is a former staffer for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, and she co-hosts the Signal Boost show, where today she got Representative Ayanna Presley to admit that she has a cat named Sojourner Truth. How cute is that? <laughs> I don't know if it rolls off the tongue. There's yes, got to be a nickname. A There's got to be. It's a good cat name. <laughs> Sojo. Clearly Sojo. Thank you, Jess. Anytime. And that's it for today's show. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Margaret Kelly and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist, which means starting tomorrow, they will be producing three interesting guest hosts. Sonari Glinton, my old friend and colleague from when we both worked at NPR, he'll be here to host. Also, The Gist will be helmed by Kate Klonick, who is an expert on online law, in fact, a law professor. She also knows about shaming. She hosts the very fun YouTube show In Lieu of Fun with Ben Wittes. And then Annie Duke gets her time on the button. Annie is a poker pro, a polymath. For years, she was the winningest woman in the history of the World Series of Poker. And uh, her, her old book is Thinking in Bets. It was great. Her new book is How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. She also should have won Celebrity Apprentice. Annie will be here starting tomorrow. And I might be checking in. The RNC delights or fascinates me. Check your feed. You might hear a few words from me while I'm on vacation. Keep checking that feed of The Gist. You know, if slipping a home run into an apology works, then why not the other way around? Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Tigers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I have sinned against you. And I beg your forgiveness. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't either. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.